and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. My guest today is Luke Morgan, a recent graduate of Duke University School of Law. His scholarship focuses primarily on the First and Second Amendments. His previous articles have discussed armed political protests, the constitutional dimensions of intentionally addictive speech, like video games and pornography, and the conditions under which district constitutional guarantees share or don't share the doctrinal rules that have developed to enforce them. We're going to talk today about his article, The Broken Branch, Capitalism, the Constitution, and the Press, forthcoming in the Penn State Law Review. Welcome, Luke. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start off with why did you write this article and what are the main points within the article? Sure. So my impetus in writing this article was I, you know, I get my news primarily through Twitter and what I would become very accustomed to is every few days, sometimes as frequently as every day, uh, I would log on to Twitter and see that a bunch of journalists that I follow had been laid off um, uh, from their jobs. And that comes in the context of what reporting revealed was a very, very serious economic crisis that journalism is going through um, as something like you know, 50% of newspaper employment and 25% of overall industry employment in the last 10 years has completely disappeared. Um, And so that's the first kind of thing that I noticed. And I think that at the same time, um, there's brewing maybe a less obvious but still important problem. And that was a, a quality problem in journalism. And to skip ahead, that's because good journalism isn't necessarily the most profitable kind of journalism. So the economic crisis that journalism is seeing isn't pruning out bad journalism. In a lot of cases, it's pruning out good journalism because good journalism is actually more expensive and less profitable. Um, and so there's a quality crisis. And, and you've seen that, I think, for quite some time you've seen from both the political right and the political left, uh, very serious critiques about mainstream journalism. And um, people can tend to be skeptical of those critiques because they come from kind of the fringes. Um, But I think when everybody is kind of agreeing that there's a problem, then that's worth looking into. Uh, so in essence, I'm looking at the state of American journalism, and it's both, I think, not very good and collapsing all around us. Uh, and so you start to wonder, what does a democracy look like without journalism? And so that's the question that kind of drove me to write this article. And uh, to answer the second part of your question, it makes two arguments, basically. The first is that journalism is collapsing, and that's more of an observation. But the argument is that it's collapsing for a really fundamental reason, which is that journalism doesn't make sense as a product generated by and served by a free market. 
In other words, journalism is not profitable to the same extent that it is desirable. And so the free market is going to generate less journalism than we kind of looking down from 30,000 feet would objectively want to have in a society. Uh, And that's just kind of like an inherent economic fact. And then so the second argument that I make is that that's a constitutional problem because the constitutional order kind of depends on or at least presupposes the existence of a sustainable, independent, and informative institutional press that can check power, both public and private power. And if you have a collapse of the institution, and the metaphor that has been used is that journalism is like a fourth branch, the institutional press is a fourth branch. If you have the collapse of that institution that is dedicated to checking power, what you would expect to see is a lot of unchecked power. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to dive too deeply into the politics, but I think that unchecked power is a not unapt description uh, of the society that we live in. And if you look at it, you know, it makes sense given the collapse of journalism. Uh, so that's why I wrote the article and that's what I'm hoping to show. So can you talk a little bit about the First Amendment, the press, and why the recent developments in both uh, First Amendment jurisprudence and uh, the collapse of the press are important? Sure. I think that, uh, as, as plenty of people have noted, we're in something of a bull market for the First Amendment right now. Um a lot of people have written about and discussed about that. But the, the basic point is that the Roberts Court in particular has, has signaled its willingness to consider First Amendment claims in a, a pretty broad array of contexts, uh, certainly much broader than we have seen in the past. And so as a result of that, we're seeing a lot of regulation be called into question. Um, and that's kind of something that I don't necessarily get to touch on in this article, but one of my points about the importance of the press clause as a bit of constitutional text is that a lot of the things that I think are probably necessary to save journalism, uh, if you look at them as a free speech question, they're going to be almost certainly unconstitutional. Uh, For example, if you were to try and uh, limit the activity of private equity firms in in the journalism market in particular, um, the the free speech clause doesn't allow us to distinguish between speakers like that. That would be very, very clearly a free speech problem. But on the other hand, if you were to develop a press clause – um, and this is this is kind of the second part of what's going on in the First Amendment jurisprudence right now, which is that along with a lot of regulation being called into question, uh, the First Amendment is operating in terms of the constitutional field 
the free speech clauses operating in a much broader array of spaces. So questions that we would think of as arising more naturally under the free under you know a different clause are instead being treated um, as free speech questions. And so this actually predates the Roberts Court certainly. And one of the consequences of that has been that in the latter half of the 20th century, the press clause essentially got erased from the Constitution uh, by the Supreme Court, not you know, by the constitutional amendment process. Um, and so the court basically said there's the right to free speech, which is generally speaking about more than speech. It's about free expression. And, you know, journalists don't get to speak any more than anyone else does. They don't have any special rights. That wouldn't make sense. So as a result of that, the press clause gets erased from the constitution. Um, and so that's why I think that it's important to uh, revitalize the press clause. Uh, Sonia West, uh, another a scholar who has written much more about this, has her term is reawakening the press clause. I think that it's important to do that because as the court itself has said repeatedly, you know, at the same time that it's erasing the press clause, uh, what it has said repeatedly is that the institutional press is extremely important in a democracy and plays a unique and irreplaceable role. Um, and I think we should take that seriously. And if that's true, which I, I think it obviously is true, then there should, you know, that should be recognized in our constitutional law. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of what's going on here. Although I don't get to the, the broader question in this article of building out, you know, what I see as the building blocks of a press clause jurisprudence. So what's the particular importance of capitalism and the collapse of the advertising based idea of media revenues? Right. So this is, it's a big question. Um, the problem essentially is that, as with a lot of other things, America has decided to leave the role that the press plays, that is the, the project of producing journalism, uh, to the free market. Uh, journalism has to pay its own way. Um, and that's particularly true of for-profit entities, obviously, which must be profitable. So they must not only cover their costs, they must then also exceed their costs. Uh, in order to exist. But it's also true in a different way for nonprofits uh, like ProPublica or NPR, which certainly receive, you know, some subsidization in the form of favorable tax treatment, for example. Uh, but there's no robust system of public financing in the United States like there is, for example, uh, in the UK, where the BBC is funded uh, in large part through taxation. Uh, so in the United States, journalism's ha uh, uh, press outlets have to not only cover their costs, but make additional money on top of that. So the result of that fact is that the quantity of journalism that we experience and the quality of journalism that we experience is a function of how much profit there is in the economy to support the journalism. And this, particularly when you get into quality, what you see is that there is not a correlation between quality journalism or even 
in terms of subject matter, important journalism uh, and how profitable it is. In fact, they're probably inversely correlated. The better and more important journalism is the least profitable journalism. Um, but to, to zoom back out, uh, basically, uh, your, your question asked about the advertising-based system, and that's really important. Uh, there are two basic revenue streams for journalism. There's advertising and then there's uh, circulation or subscription fees. And so when you think of a traditional transaction in the market, uh, you think the consumer and the producer agree upon a price and the consumer gives the producer the money and the producer gives the consumer the product. Um, and you can complicate that by adding distributors, etc. But that's the basic building block of an economic transaction in the market. That's not what happens with journalism in any sense whatsoever. And the reason for that is that uh, the producer and the consumer could never come to a mutually agreeable price because the price required to make journalism profitable is much higher than what any consumer is willing to pay. Um, and that's even when you, you split it a, along a broad base of, of consumers. Now, the only time that that becomes the case is when you have huge national outlets like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Those outlets can pretty much exist on the basis of subscription fees alone because they can sell to the entire country. Um, that isn't the case with once you get basically any smaller than that. Anytime that you're primarily a regional or a city newspaper, uh, you can't exist based on subscription fees at a, a loan. So, so that's the first problem. People aren't willing to pay what it costs. People have never been willing to pay what it costs to produce journalism. The second problem, which I think is probably just as important, is that a huge portion of journalism's value especially public interest journalism, which I think is what we're worried about from a constitutional perspective, which is, you know, journalism that's dedicated to checking power. Um, a huge portion of its value is entirely contained in externalities. And there have been economists who have studied this. So, for example, you have a newspaper that publishes a series on police shootings. And as a result of that series, uh, significant reforms go into place. And um, as a result of those reforms, less people are shot by the police, which means that less people die and that the city's paying out less in you know, settlements and lawsuits. And, and the savings to the population of that city can be in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars from something like that. The newspaper doesn't necessarily get any of that money whatsoever. There's no system by which any of that excess money can be given back to the newspaper. The only way is that the newspaper says, hey, look what we did. Please subscribe to us. And they get more subscribers maybe, and then maybe more advertising revenue comes because they have more subscribers. But that's not in any way a guarantee and traditionally hasn't worked out. Um, so you have studies that show that. There's studies that show, for example, that local officials give themselves raises uh, immediately after their local newspaper closes, um, that the cost of borrowing for local governments increases when local newspapers close. And so none of that excess value that the paper generates can be 
given back to the newspaper in any direct way. Uh, so, so that's the basic fundamental economic problem with journal. The two really basic fundamental economic problems with journalism: one, it's a public good, and so people won't pay for it um, to the same extent that we need them to pay for it. And two, most of its value is in externalities. So to fill the gap between basically the, the two price points, the price point that gives us the amount of journalism that is profitable versus the price point that gives us the amount of journalism that we want, um, we, we've relied on two dynamics. And both of those dynamics are indicative of market failure, not of, uh, of a working market. And so the first one is um, subsidization. Uh, a subsidy is a process by which someone other than the consumer bears the final cost of producing the the product or part of the final cost of producing the product and enough profit to incentivize continued production. And so in, in early America, the government subsidized the newspapers. Um, that As that subsidy declined, uh, the political parties took over and in, you know, the antebellum era, we had party newspapers in which the parties funded the newspapers and the newspapers answered to the parties. Um, and then after the Civil War, we start to industrialize. You have the rise of mass consumerism, and that's when advertisers step in. And this advertiser subsidy is what we have had until now. And it, it has been significant. I think, generally speaking, uh, for most of that period until recently, advertisers have covered 80% of the costs uh, of producing journalism and consumers subscriptions circulation has only been 20%. So that's the first thing is you have subsidization. The second is monopolization. So in the early 20th century, uh, you had a, a medium sized city of 90,000 people had four daily newspapers. Um, cities like New York or Chicago had 11 daily newspapers. Um, today, I think there's like, three or four cities that have more than one. Um, and and so you have monopolization. And the, the function of monopolization is to allow the newspaper to charge the advertisers more. Um, because basically what, what happened when the advertiser system evolved is that advertisers became the real uh, target uh, of newspapers. And subscribers existed basically for the newspapers to say, here's our number of sur subscribers and to sell themselves to, to the advertisers. Uh, so, so that's kind of, sorry, I went on so long, but that's basically the interplay you have between, between capitalism and journalism uh, in America today. So, Talk about the proposed quote-unquote fixes you outlined in your article, uh, patronage and corporatization, and what the positives and negatives are for both of them. Sure. So really quickly before that, um, w w I think it, it's important to say that what has happened in the last 20 years or so is that the internet basically uh, broke both the subsidization model and the monopolization model. Um, so Craigslist almost overnight wiped out classified ads, which were 
essentially a license to print money for newspapers. This was in the latter half of the 20th century. Investors loved newspapers. Warren Buffett got his start in newspapers. And the reason they love newspapers is because they're monopolies and classified ads made so much money. They, in, in a lot of places, they covered 50% of the cost. Um, Craigslist wiped them out overnight, and then Facebook and Google took over the commercial advertising market, leaving almost nothing for papers. So, you know, I, I gave earlier the the traditional breakdown of advertising to circulation was 80-20. Um, for the first time in, I think, 2010, uh, circulation took over advertising. And then today, it's like 80-20 the other way basically. And in the same time period, circulation has gone down. So it's not like circulation is exploding and that's why it's becoming a bigger part. It's that advertising has completely collapsed. Um, just, I have the, I don't have the numbers before me, but they're in the paper and it's, it's shocking. The, the, just the complete collapse of the revenue for the newspaper model. So, so that's the era that we're in now. Um, and uh, what your question alluded to is that there have been, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do. And there have been basically two solutions that have emerged. And I don't think either of them are really solutions. The first is kind of a patronage model. Um, and that's basically where you get a rich person to buy your newspaper. Uh, you get Jeff Bezos to buy the Washington Post. You get... Uh, uh, Carlos Slim is a Mexican billionaire who gave the New York Times essentially a $500 million bailout um, and at one point owned 20% of the New York Times. Uh, so those are the, at, the, at the big level. You also have at much smaller levels and at the nonprofit level an increased reliance on essentially billionaires to just fund the journalism and to you know swallow any losses. Um, and the reason it's not a fix is that it doesn't fix the fundamental economic problem with journalism. It's just about finding a well of money that is deep enough that they don't even notice or don't care that the newspaper isn't profitable. Uh, so that's patronage. Uh, the second solution that has emerged is, is corporatization. And that's also not great. Corporatization is basically uh, a, a transition from what has traditionally been the case in American journalism, which is that newspapers have been independently owned. You have, you know, one company owns, you know, the Greenville Times or whatever, and that's their newspaper. And it's a family business. And it's, you know, the New York Times, for example, the Soulsburgers have run it, and it's just their family business. Um, Instead of that, we're transitioning to a point where uh, increasingly newspapers are owned by chains. Um, and so a chain may own hundreds of small newspapers. And one of the things that happens with that is that that increases layoffs because, uh, for example, a chain of newspapers will have a single copy editing department where all of their newspapers send in their their copy which is edited in this single department and they send it back out to all their papers um once again the problem with this is that uh with corporatization in particular is that it tends to decrease the quality of journalism and that's again because Good journalism is more expensive than bad journalism um, and less profitable. And so uh, corporate 
chains tend to have an increased focus on profits. And there have been studies that show that, for example, advertising editors at corporate-owned papers generally play you know, faster and looser with the ethical rules than advertising editors at independent papers. And so the bigger problem with, I think, both the patronage and the corporatization models is that this is not the relationship with power that you want journalism to have. You don't want journalism to be dependent on power. Um, And then I guess the more empirical problem is that neither of them have solved the fact that because it's an unsolvable fact, that journalism is a public good and it just can't be profitable to the same extent that it's desirable. And so you can't fix it through the market system. So how has the idea of the free press been interpreted over time, particularly in regards to uh, the constitution and the idea of press freedom? Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically the, it has traditionally been, and especially at the founding, uh, the idea of press freedom was the was considered one of the most important rights in the Bill of Rights, for example, and even preceding the Constitution. Uh, press freedom was the subject of toasts. Uh, people would get together and celebrate the anniversary of uh, the repeal of the Stamp Act, and they would toast to press freedom. Um, and so... It was the reason that it was considered so important was because it was considered the language they used was it was a palladium of liberty or a bulwark of liberty. It was a freedom upon which all other freedoms relied because its fundamental orientation was to checking power, Um, especially their concern at the time, obviously, was about despotic government power. And so what they said was that press freedom was about making sure that government was not oppressive and that it functioned properly and efficiently and so on. And so it was extremely valued. In fact, it was spoken about much more frequently than free speech was um, in in early American history. Uh, Over time, that obviously has shifted. to the point where, as I said earlier, in in the late 20th century, free speech overtakes completely free press to the point that the the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of the press is essentially erased from the Constitution. Um, and and uh, we'll talk later about the the reason that that is. Um, but the big question about what the constitution means by freedom of the press is does it mean freedom to use the press basically freedom to disseminate your expression broadly um and so that's what i call the dissemination theory is um you have freedom of speech which is the freedom to talk and then you have uh freedom of press which is basically the freedom to publish um or and and I think that the important thing here is that both of these are completely equally plausible from a textual standpoint. Uh, the other possibility is that when the First Amendment talks about freedom of the press, is it talking about freedom that belongs to the press as a, a collective noun, basically? And I think 
my argument that I advance here is that it's the second. It's referring to the press as the institutional press because the institutional press has traditionally played an extremely valuable and irreplaceable role uh, in, in American society. So what has the role been of the institutional press historically? And what is the institutional press's importance in a representative democracy? Mm-hmm. So really quickly, when I talk about the institutional press, the thing that I'm talking about is uh, I, I think it's a little self-explanatory. Floyd Abrams once said, uh, I, I don't think the court will have any problem identifying a journalist when it sees one. Um, I think that basically the institutional press is organizations that employ journalists, um, as opposed to, for example, you know, you're paradigmatic lone pamphleteer or a blogger or someone tweeting. Um, I'm, I'm talking about institutions, organizations that employ journalists and produce public interest journalism. Um, and so talking about its role historically, one of the arguments that I make for interpreting the Constitution to be talking about the institutional press is that if you look at the immediate historical backdrop against which the Constitution is written, which I think it would be really kind of error not to do. But if you look at that history, uh, the institutional press was foundationally important in the American Revolution. And it is kind of, I think, silly looking back on what was said about freedom of the press and looking back on what was said about the institutional press to, to think that they were talking about anything else when they talked about the press. So, for example, Thomas Jefferson famously said that he would rather have uh, newspapers without a government than a government without newspapers. And I think that, you know, Thomas Jefferson didn't love the newspapers of the time at all. He hated them. But I think that his statement should be taken literally, which is that the Constitution is premised on the existence of the institutional press. So I don't want to go through, you know, the entire history, but just as, you know, one example, um, the institutional press in the Revolutionary War played an extremely important role in uh advocating for the cause of revolution and for making that a reality. The institutional press led the opposition to the Stamp Act, um, which the opposition to the Stamp Act really sparked the revolution in, in a lot of ways. And then if you look at of course, the immediate aftermath of the revolution, when we're creating a constitution, the institutional press is the battleground, uh, the ideological battleground in which that debate plays out, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers being published and debated through the institutional press. Um, and then if you look in the then the immediate aftermath of that, uh, the first Congress uh, puts into place a generous newspaper subsidy to encourage the spread of newspapers. Um, so I think, you know, I've got a lot more examples uh, in, in that portion of the paper. But I think that if you look at what was going on at the time, the institutional press was extremely, extremely important. It loomed, you know, extremely large in the understanding of what was considered to be one of the most important constitutional rights at the time. And so 
I think that that needs to be taken into account when we ask what the Constitution means. So can you talk about dissemination theory and its premises and why you believe that we should reject it? Sure. So as I said before, dissemination theory is basically the idea that you have the two clauses of the First Amendment. There's more, obviously, but you have the free speech clause, which uh, is about the right to speak freely. And then you have the free press clause, which is about the right to disseminate one's thoughts or one's speech. And so uh, the textual hook is that the free press clause, uh, freedom of the press means freedom to use the press, freedom to publish your ideas, to disseminate them broadly. Um this is uh, obviously the theory that is in vogue at, at the Supreme Court right now. It's the reason that the press clause got written out of the Constitution is because um, if you view the, the two clauses that way, then the expansion of the free speech clause, which today you know comfortably and I think sensibly includes publishing one's thoughts, um, then there's nothing left for the press clause to do. Um, there are, I think, some major problems with that. First and foremost, obviously, is what I just spoke about, which is that uh, as, as a historical matter, uh, erasing from the Constitution the institutional press um, doesn't seem to square with what had to have been in uh, the the Constitution's authors and the ratifying public's mind at the time when this was happening, um, as evidenced by you know what they said at the time. I think that there are also some important roles that I, if if we accept that the press clause is about checking power, then I think the institutional press is uh, particularly effective at doing that um, in a way that you know the lone pamphleteer again necessarily can't be um you know if you are somewhat a civil libertarian and you want to protect the right to disseminate your thoughts broadly um you want the new york times to be the person suing the government as opposed to you know just some random crank who who wants to pass out his pamphlets. And that random crank has been successful in the free speech clause arena. But generally speaking, uh, it, when power turns its sights on dissent, uh, you you want some power, realistically speaking, behind the voice of dissent. And so that's one of the roles that the institutional press plays. It also helps to enable a, a shared reality uh, from which democratic decision making can emerge. It, it provides a set of facts that we can assume uh, and then build policy responses to those facts based on. And I think that one of the things that we have seen that has happened in the last 20 years, just as an example, as the institutional press has collapsed and fragmented, has been a, a, a complete breakdown of, share, of our shared reality. Um, and that's, for example, why you see the climate change debate being a debate about whether it exists as opposed to a debate about how to respond to it. Um, and I think that that's just one example of the the ways in which uh, the collapse of the institutional press is both visible and is is constitutionally problematic because of the role that the press plays in enabling democratic deliberation. So in addition to that, I think that um, the dissemination theory is also 
a, a little bit circular, just as a matter of reasoning. Um, there's no reason to believe that the framers understood the right of free speech to not include the right to write down and publish your thoughts. Um, we don't know. There's not a lot of evidence about what they meant by free speech, but there's no reason to believe that they meant uh, just literally the right to vocalize your thoughts. And so I think that it's it's kind of based on an assumption, uh, and the assumption is also the conclusion, uh, which is that free speech is limited to this, and the press clause is therefore this, um, is both the assumption and the ultimate conclusion of dissemination theory. So I think that that's also problematic. So we've talked about press freedom. Can you talk about press unfreedom and how the current situation that we've gone through really threatens the idea of press freedom? Absolutely. Um, basically, I, th I think that I, I gave one example of it already, which is the climate change debate. And it's just basically, you know, the idea that democracy Democratic decision-making depends in large part on the existence of a sustainable and independent and meaningfully powerful press dedicated to checking power. Um, and in the absence of that press or in the absence of that function, uh, it's we could predictably see, you know, bad things start to happen. And so, for example, you know, one one study has shown, for example, that when uh, a local television station is taken over by a Sinclair Media Group, which is this really huge, they own the television stations reaching, I think, 37% of American households. When a local station is taken over by Sinclair, uh, what happens is that Sinclair, one, um, has Sinclair is owned by some very conservative people and it has an extreme kind of editorial bias that is reflected um, in their programming. But two, and I think more importantly, is that the the percent of local news declines and the percent of national news uh, increases. And studies have shown that that tends to increase polarization because if you're only getting national news, you're not getting local news. Um, I think one study showed that when a Sinclair took over a local TV station, uh, citizens were something like 5% more likely to cast a straight, uh, straight party ballot as opposed to splitting their presidential and their senatorial picks. Um, so that's just like one example of the ways that this plays out. I think that there are much more kind of problematic and less empirically based things. Um, the first is that one way that we try to make journalism profitable, one way that we try to change the economic facts of journalism is to make it excludable. Um, and that's one thing just to give an even more contemporary example that we're seeing is uh, paywalls on uh, articles about the coronavirus. Um, a lot of press outlets have removed their paywalls, but a lot haven't. Um, and so we don't, it doesn't, it's not good. I mean, we don't want people's access to information uh, about 
a ongoing global pandemic to be a function of their ability to pay for that information. We don't want journalism to be a luxury good. Uh, if we want well-educated voters, which I, I think we do, and if we want voters who are basing their votes for different policies on a shared idea of what reality is, and they may have different ideas of how to react to that reality. But if we want them to be based on a shared idea of what reality is, then we don't want some people to be excluded from information about that reality uh, based on their ability to pay. Um, that's just not a good way of, of running a democratic society. Uh, the second problem is that you have an unequal distribution uh, of access to journalism, um, not just along economic lines, but also along geographic lines. Um, and if journalism is about checking power um, and assuming that it effectively does so, that means you have an unequal distribution of the ability to check power. Um, so, for example, the state of South Dakota, there are two journalists covering the state house uh, right now, um, and one of them works for six newspapers. Um, there are obviously many more journalists covering the state house in New York, for example. Um, and so we don't, as a democratic society, we don't want an unequal distribution of people's ability to check power. Um, so that's the problem. And then the third problem I think that's really important is that uh, when journalism is economically weak, that provides an opportunity for coercion. Um, and a lot of people have written in the past about the coercive uh, ability that advertisers have over journalism. Uh, but just as a general matter, it also makes journalism more uh, susceptible to, to government coercion as well. So I think that as a, as a general matter, we just don't want our journalism to be a luxury good uh, that is distributed along the basis of ability to pay. That doesn't make sense for the role that journalism is meant to pay, play in a democratic society. And so that's what I call press on freedom is, is a combination of, of these factors and the way that treating journalism as a market good as an unsustainable market good in particular, uh, really undermines its democratic premises, which in turn, the constitutional order is kind of based on. And I think that we really have seen the deleterious effects of the collapse of journalism over the last 20 years. Is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't quite covered yet? Um, I don't think so. I've talked for a really long time. <laughs> All right. So as a final question, what would you like students, scholars, and policymakers to take away from this article? Uh, I have one thing that I think should be taken away from this article, and that is subsidized journalism. Journalism cannot exist as a market good. It doesn't make sense for it exist to mar as a market good, and it's bad. Uh, it's actively uh, malignant for it to exist as a market good. Uh, it needs to be subsidized and it needs to be subsidized now. And I guess as an afterthought of that, um, there's been some reporting recently that like in the aftermath of our current situation, 
um, private equity firms are poised to, uh, you know, start to gobble up a lot more um, smaller firms. And that's a microcosm of what has been happening to journalism in the last 20 years. And it's not going to be a good thing if it happens. So uh, part of our response to the current crisis should be to subsidize journalism. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast to talk about this very interesting article. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I appreciated it, and I appreciated the ability to talk at some length about this. I'm very passionate about it. Country's fight for survival. Read about the county fair. See them advertise the latest rage. Your kitties have their comic page, and here's the latest movie in town. There's no one this paper wouldn't please, cause every column guarantees a smile, a tear, a laugh, or a frown. From every walk of our society, variety from comedy to tragedy. Just turn the page and see. Extra, extra, read all about it. Get your paper here. What do you read there? It's the story of a boy and a girl in the world of a love affair. Then the girl meets a millionaire. Now they tell how the poor boy died. Another suicide. Get your paper, get your paper, I'm here to shout it, read all about it, get your paper, read about a world of hatred and malice, must there be another war, read about a king who lives in a palace, Read about the guy next door. So, lady, mister, buy a paper, please. By 12 o'clock, I must be rid of these. Cause my pa can't work and ma ain't so well. And my pay depends on how much I sell. Get your Read all about it, get your pay.